let me begin with a thesis question, as we do sometimes, something I want you to think about. It is this question that drives the entire book of 1 Corinthians. It's a question that the early church uh, debated, struggled with, finally find, had to find common ground on and really understand what made us the people of God. It's this thesis question, what makes you God's people? When the Corinthians were asking this, they were using the word pneumaticos, what makes you pneumaticos, what makes you spiritual, but what makes you the people of God? If someone were to ask you that question, you know, are you God's people, uh, I would hope you could formulate a couple of sentence answer to this. Let me, let me ask it a slightly different way. How do we know that we are God's people? To be thinking about this and wrestling with the tension of this for a moment. Like I said, it drives whole books in your Bible, the answer to this question. How do you know? What is the evidence? What is the proof? What is the fruit? How do you know that we are the people of God? Pentecostals have one answer. They have an answer to this question. The Jews have an answer to this question. The Baptists have an answer, kind of, to this question. Every group has an answer to this question. We are an interdenominational church, so we have to begin to find what our common ground is to the answer to this question. If being Baptist is what makes you God's people, then everyone in this room is not God's people. Because we're not all Baptists in this room. If being raised Methodist makes you God's people, then we're not all God's people. If being Pentecostal or charismatic or being raised to speaking in tongues and, and with the, the gifts, if that's what makes you God's people, then we're not all God's people because I wasn't raised that way and many of you weren't raised that way. Yet I know I'm God's people. And TG, you know you're God's people. And you know you're God's people. And I just use four people right here that were not raised in the same background. What is our common ground? What is it that unites us that's bigger than a label and bigger than a denomination and bigger than a tradition that holds us tightly together, knit as one people of God? This discussion we're going to have over a few weeks and and. Uh, Jeremy's going to interject some thoughts about through the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, and I'm going to pick this discussion up again on the back side of that. Uh, I, I want to go slow, and I want you to ask lots of questions, email questions, ask questions. Uh, if you think it's dumb or obvious, ask it anyway, because if you have it, other people have it, and we want to we wanna have a robust discussion. But in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the baptism of the Spirit. That's my topic this morning. We're going to talk about the filling of the Spirit, coming days. We're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And we want you to have distinction in your mind about what these terms mean. Uh, they're evangelical terms. So they're not all found in the Scripture, as I'll show you this morning, uh, with baptism of the Spirit. They're not all scriptural phrases but they're theological terms used by evangelicals which is all of us uh people who are followers of Christ use different christian speak christian phrases and sometimes they're a little confusing and we don't know 
You know, is the filling of the Spirit the same as the baptism of the Spirit? Is that the same as the fruit of the Spirit? Is that the same as the gifts of the Spirit? It gets confusing. And so we want to go slow and see if we can delineate the difference. First, this morning, I want to give you a little history lesson. I want to give you the history behind this evangelical term that you'll encounter called the baptism of the Spirit. Let me give you a history of the baptism of the Spirit. For most of church history, church history obviously is more than 2,000 years of running history since the days of Jesus Christ. For most of church history, little or nothing was said about the baptism of the Spirit until the 19th century, and then it became a hot topic. There was a sweeping move of God, I believe, in the United States, began on the West Coast, really, and began the holiness movement. For about 1,900 years, nobody really talked about that. So I want to just plant this seed in your mind. Let me back up a little bit, and let's go back over to England. There's a a famous pastor over there named John Wesley. Uh, Some of you in this room are from the Wesleyan tradition. Some of you uh, have a Methodist tradition in your family. My great-grandfather, a Methodist circuit-riding, horseback-riding pastor. I have some of this in my DNA as well. Uh, The Methodists were started by the Wesley brothers. Uh, John Wesley is a righteous dude, okay? So when we're talking about John Wesley, I'm not... I don't want you to read criticism into my words this morning. This is a godly, righteous man. For those of you who love the hymns, he wrote a big chunk of them. He and his family did. They are prolific hymn writers. And uh, Wesley uh, came to the uh, the States. He's a big uh, evangelist, big preacher on both continents, and was really mightily used of God. He's the founder of the Methodist denomination. And uh, as I said, a righteous man, one of his teachings, not one that I agree with, but one of his teachings was called entire sanctification or Christian perfection. And what Wesley taught was the idea that with the, a, a fresh encounter of the Holy Spirit, a Christian could achieve entire sanctification. Let me break it down into a little more layman's terms. Wesley said that after you get saved, you have a second experience with the Holy Spirit at some point in your life. And when you do, the Holy Spirit would then take you to a plane where basically you didn't sin anymore. Entire sanctification, uh, Christian holiness, okay, personal holiness. And uh, Wesley taught that. Uh, maybe I disagree with it because I've not achieved it. I, you don't see what I'm saying. But th- he taught that you'd get to a place where basically you didn't sin. So I'm just giving you the cliff notes of the history now. Uh, But to do this, Wesley argued that you had to have a second work of grace, a second experience. After your salvation and baptism, somewhere later in your Christian, you have a second experience with the Holy Spirit after you're saved. And that idea, the teaching of Wesley, uh, and he taught that this was for personal holiness so that you didn't sin was the whole point of all of this but his ideal was picked up by a group uh, who called themselves the the Kesick. Uh it's k-e-s-w-i-c-k but it's pronounced Kesick convention uh fast forward a little bit Kesick convention here's a gathering of people at the Kesick convention and this is in Kesick, uh england and they, they do this every year from the time they started it 
and it's like a started as a tent revival in England and then it grew more into a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger holiness movement based on this idea that Wesley was putting forth of a second experience with the Holy Spirit after salvation and uh, they, the, some famous theologians, now for those of you who are theologians in the room, I'll put the names out there, it won't mean anything to anyone else, but famous speakers and Christian writers came out of this movement or were associated with it, people like D.L. Moody, Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, it's one of the biggest um, uh, influences for Christ in this continent, was the Moody Church. So D.L. Moody is a big figure, Charles Finney, uh, R.A. Torrey. Andrew Murray, the writer, Watchman Nee, the theologian and writer. A lot of these guys were associated with the Kesit Convention and this holiness idea that there's a second experience after salvation and they uh, called it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they all taught that this spirit baptism was something that every believer should be pursuing until it happened in their life. R.A. Torrey came up with the name Baptism of the Spirit and all of these people who kind of picked up the, the essence of the movement held on to R.A. Torrey's label Baptism of the Spirit. That was kind of his thing. Now let's bring it really to America right now and get it going. So then in 1906 is a big thing that happened in Los Angeles. In 1906 on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California Pastor William Seymour. You have William Seymour, an African-American pastor, uh, pastoring in a, uh, it was a tent, and then they bought a building, uh, and it's like the Old West out there when you see old pictures of this, and uh, this, this man right here, Pastor William Seymour, was leading the Azusa Street Mission in 1906, and there was a, a, a pouring out, a moving of God that swept over that mission and people came from all over America to be a part of what was happening at the Azusa Street Mission and essentially it was the birth of Pentecostalism, okay? I mean, look at the headlines. Of, there's a newspaper overlaid with the old building. Look at, look at, look at the sub-headline right here. Pentecost has come. Where? To Los Angeles, California, 1906. The Azusa Street Mission, Pastor William Seymour. And this was what you would call the birth of Pentecostalism as a denomination in, in America. All right, now these are just cliff notes, so let me fast forward a little bit more. That's 1906. In the last hundred years, Pentecostalism has spread globally from America all over the world, okay? And Pentecostalism now makes up more than one in four Christians globally. Let me say it a different way. Pentecostalism now accounts for more than 25% of Christians globally, worldwide. The chances are if you go to Africa and you meet a Christian, they're charismatic, they're Pentecostal of some form. Does that make sense? If you go to Central America or South America, if you go to the Southern Hemisphere, which is on fire right now with the gospel, this is where Christianity is spreading. It's not in North America. It's not in UK. It's not in Europe where Christianity is rapidly spreading in the Southern Hemisphere. If you go and meet those people, you'll, you're more than likely the Christian you meet 
They say by 2025, the average Christian in the world will be a brown-skinned or black-skinned female age 15 living in a village somewhere in the southern hemisphere. And she will be more charismatic than you are. That's where Christianity is going at an incredibly rapid rate while we go through the motions of Christianity in America. Okay? I just want you to grab that. More than one-fourth from this meeting... It spread globally now to this version of Christianity composes more than 25% of Christians worldwide. Pentecostalism champions the idea of Wesley and the Kesick Convention and the Azusa Street Mission that there is a second work of grace and Pentecostalism held on. They retained Tory's term, R.E. Tory, the theologian's term, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecostalism put this twist on those other guys' teaching. The Pentecostals pivoted to say that the second experience with the Holy Spirit was not about holiness leading us to Christian perfection, but instead the second experience with the Holy Spirit was for us to have power for our Christian lives and for witness. That was the pivot of Pentecostalism. And the practice of laying on of hands as a way to receive the baptism of the Spirit is practiced in the Pentecostal church. You come forward and and the pastor or someone lays hands on you or the elders and you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the church service as a second experience, second work of grace, second experience with the Holy Spirit. And if it works right... (coughs) then you will have uh, the evidence that you've received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They claim that the speaking of tongues is the emphatic evidence that you have now officially received the baptism of the Spirit. So you come forward, lay on hands, you'd receive the baptism, you'd begin to speak in tongues, and everybody would say, okay, you have the Holy Spirit. Now these are the central two tenets, the central two teachings, doctrines, of the, the Pentecostal church or Pentecostalism which is Assembly of God, Church of God, Pentecostalism. There's, there's several different groups but uh, adhere to this. Now we've linked in version to the notes because I just went out to the Pentecostal Assembly of God website and just posted Doctrine 7 and 8. They're in the notes and you'll see that Doctrine 7 and 8 teach exactly verbatim what I just said. Okay? That you, every Christian will receive a second work of grace called the baptism of the Spirit. And you will speak in tongues as the evidence that you have the baptism of the Spirit. So now the question for those of you who are listening here this morning in person and remotely. The big question that you're wrestling with and that I want you to wrestle with for several weeks now is, is this correct? Are they right? Where are you on this teaching? Because this is the most prominent teaching among the fastest growing group of Christians in the world today. Where are, where are we as a church on what I just expounded about the teachings of Pentecostalism? Are we to be seeking a new Pentecost? So let's talk about seeking a new Pentecost for just a moment. In the more charismatic circles, and many of you were raised in a more charismatic circle, I'm not speaking against it. I'm saying if you were raised in a more Pentecostal circle or charismatic circle, 
you will hear the word Pentecost all the time. You'll constantly be discussions about, constantly coming up in the context of the messages and the teaching, Pentecost this and Pentecost that. Many references will be made to Pentecost with the teaching that what the disciples experienced on Pentecost in Acts chapter number 2 is something that every one of us should be seeking today. And we should be pursuing uh, to have a Pentecost experience until we have it. So I want to talk about that. Are we seeking a new Pentecost? But let me back up from chapter 2 to chapter 1 and show you what led into chapter 2. In chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's meeting with the, uh, the disciples. He's been fellowshipping with them for more than a month. And he's about to give them a, another commission He's about to give them final departing instructions. We've already talked about the ascension in the Apostles' Creed series. He ascends in chapter number 1 of Acts. And then in chapter number 2, they go to Jerusalem and they hang tight just as Jesus told them until the Holy Spirit arrives. And that was, those were Jesus-specific instructions to them. But he told them that once the Holy Spirit did show up, that they were to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the other part once the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the, the, the his indwelling presence now I want you to spread and I want you to go do what I've told you to do Matthew 28 go and make disciples and you will have the power and the equipment in the presence of God in you to go do what I'm calling you to do so let me back up to Acts 1 and I'll show you where Jesus begins to mention this again Acts 1 verse 4 on one occasion while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist baptized with what? But in a few days, you will be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus saying, okay, John did this, but here's what's about to happen. Yeah, you guys were all baptized by John in water, but in a few days you're going to be baptized with something different. The Holy Spirit is going to show up. Now, again, who is Jesus talking to? Jesus is talking to Peter, James, and John. Jesus is talking to the apostles. He's talking to Mary. He's talking to Martha. He's, he's talking to the core uh, believers who have followed him through his ministry. These people are already believers. They already know who the Messiah is. They've already put their faith in him. But they've not had this outpouring, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit because it doesn't happen until you turn the page in your Bible from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter number 2. Now we call it Pentecost because it's a Jewish feast. So the Jewish feasts are Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Trumpets. These are all Jewish feasts that Judaism uh, kept uh, as a way of remembering uh, their covenant with God at Sinai. And God commanded them to keep those feasts so they would remember what God had done and what God was going to do. And it was a way for Israel to connect as the people of God to their covenant with God at Sinai. We call it the Old Covenant or the Sinai Covenant or the Moses Covenant. They remember that covenant by keeping the feasts. And they reflect about who it is and what it means to be God's people. Now, it just so happened, because, you know, Jesus was crucified, uh, arrested and crucified at Passover. 
For Christ our Passover is crucified for us. And he rose on Sunday in the Feast of First Fruits. And, and now 40 days later, beyond that, uh, he's ascended. He says, wait at Jerusalem, Pentecost. So you know what a pentagram is, right? Or the Pentagon, five sides, five points. 50, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. And so now Christ has ascended. They're waiting at Jerusalem. It so happens it's the Feast of Pentecost. So they're all going to come together and remember what it means to be God's people. That's what the feasts are all about. It's going to be about what it means to be the people of God. And while they're all gathering together in this Old, Tev- Old Covenant feast moment, uh, it just so happened, uh, not by mistake, but it just is that it was on Pentecost and, and they're thinking about what it means to be the people of God that the scripture tells us all together in one place and suddenly there was this sound that came through the room like a, like a hurricane, like a tornado, like a wind rushing and blowing through the room. This violent wind came through and then all of a sudden individual flames of fire called tongues of fire not because of this but because of the shape the little tongues of little flames of fire began to descend and hover over everyone's head and the people began to speak in tongues and they were filled with the holy spirit now pentecostalism argues that Acts 2, what I just described, is normative for all believers then and now. That all believers should have this Pentecost experience. And they argue for, just to make language simple, a two-step, two-stage process for Christians. First, you get saved and baptized in water. It's like stage one, Acts 1. And then stage two, then you have a second experience with the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit fills you and dwells you and you speak in tongues as evidence that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter two. So the Pentecostals see the Acts one, Acts two combination, believe and you're baptized. Now you have a second work where the Spirit fills you. They believe that that became the formula uh, after the ascension of Christ for the first set of believers going all the way to this present moment i see a little differently i see pentecost as a one-off event i see pentecost as a non-recurring non-repeating event i see pentecost as an event that signaled the launch of a new era that god said you go to jerusalem and terry and i'm going to do something that's going to launch a whole new thing the old covenant is about to be wrapped And the new covenant is about to break out. And and what you have as you begin to read through Acts is that transition period where the old is being closed out and the new is being ushered in. And they were all in the Old Testament, really, uh, up to this point. And what's happening is taking them out of the old covenant and launching them into the new covenant, which is in faith in Jesus Christ. And God, I don't think it's a coincidence, on on a Jewish feast did this because the feasts are about us being the people of God from a Jewish perspective. 
And uh, God is assembling a new people now made up of Jews and Gentiles. The church is now the new people of God. And this event in Acts 2 that they call Pentecost, this event signaled the beginning of something new. And it was very new indeed because the Holy Spirit was going to come and inhabit every individual believer. And and he may be known now as Holy Spirit, a personal relationship. I know him in an individual and personal way. Let me see if I can make it more clear. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then heaven and earth are now connected in your heart this morning. You have made a connection with God, and heaven and earth have united inside of you. God is living in his new people, not among his new people. He is in you, and you are a living temple of Almighty God. So each of us are going to have to decide what we believe the Scripture is teaching about Pentecost, about the Holy Spirit, about the baptism of the Spirit, Does Pentecost signal the launch of a new covenant or does Pentecost signal that this is the formula that God wants us to follow for every believer in every age and in 2021 we need to be having this same kind of rushing wind, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues, dramatic Pentecost experience. Now, I I know we all see this through different lenses, uh, but I think the answer to this one is fairly easy since we do not have recurring events chronicled all throughout her church history. In other words, I could take you to Azusa Street, I could take you to Kesick Convention, I could take you to a few other places, but that's not very widespread for 2,000 years and hundreds of millions of Christians coming to Christ. In other words, it does not seem normative that this is the, a common thing that's happened. We do not have recurring events chronicled in our church history books where other congregations throughout history had this tongue of fire experience, this rushing mighty wind experience, and then the whole congregation began to speak in tongues as, as the Spirit gave them utterance. What we do have is we have an Old Testament filled with prophecies where the Old Testament prophets are beginning to say, God is about to do something different. You see these dry bones, Ezekiel, God's going to breathe life into them and raise up a whole new people. Israel thought it was Israel, but Israel is not about DNA. It's not about genetics. Israel is not about what Israel thought it was about. Israel is about an idea that God had that he would have a nation of people of his own who had a heart to follow him. That's what Israel means. And Israel, that you know, the nation, didn't have a heart to follow God. That was the whole point. And so God sent his son to be our savior. And he says, I'm going to pull together a new people of God. Yeah, you'll be Abraham's kids by faith in Jesus Christ. And heirs according to the promise. You'll get adopted as Gentiles into the family of Israel. You'll be like a wild olive branch grafted in to the regular olive tree. Yes, you're going to be the family of God by adoption and by the grace of Jesus Christ because He wants a people and He's calling out a people of every tribe and every race and every kindred and every tribe and every tongue and every sex and every color and every language with no discrimination against anyone. 
This is beautiful in the scripture. Israel is not just Abraham. Israel now is us. We are the new people of God. And this is what the prophets started to talk about. Joel said, he forecast, Acts 2. He said, the day's coming when God's going to pour out his spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to pour my spirit out upon my people. Well, Peter stands up in Acts 2 and says, he quotes Joel and says, here it is. These people are not drunk. This is Joel breaking out right now. The new covenant is breaking out right now. These are the people of God. See, this is exactly what Ezekiel said. Listen to what Ezekiel said. I will give you a new heart. How? (laughs) Because I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your your heart of I'll move from you your heart of stone, that old hard heart that doesn't care for the things of God, and I'll put a tender, soft heart of flesh in you. I will put my spirit in you. And because of that, what is the result? I will move you to follow my decrees. Have you ever thought it's just impossible to to live up to the Bible? I just can't do it. And you're exactly right. On your own, you can't. That's why God put his spirit in you. He gives you a heart to want to try. He gives you a heart to try to pursue Christ. And he also gives you ability to go beyond where you are and mortify the flesh and mortify sin in your life and magnify Christ in your life so that you are empowered and enabled to live the life of Christ now here's what the Pentecostals are teaching I'm just giving you cliff notes it's a two that that really for Christianity you need to be thinking about a two-stage process two-stage process believe and baptize and then you have a second work of a second experience second work of grace with the Holy Spirit where you are baptized in the Spirit and you begin to speak in tongues and they get that from acts 1 and 2 as the beginning but what i want to say to you is there are two other passages in acts that also reinforce their teaching they have two other proof texts in the book of acts i'm going to read them to you in just a second before i do what i want you to notice that in both of these texts christianity has now gone outside of judaism in other words the gospel is spreading beyond israel now and both of these texts are, are, are becoming unique because the gospel is going out now to Gentiles. And this marks a drastic change in, in, in everything. The Bible up to this point has really been about Jews. It's been about Abraham. It's been about Moses. It's been about national Israel. And now the discussion is about to change in the middle of the book of Acts. And for the rest of the journey, the discussion is now inclusive of all of us, Jews and non-Jews, who are coming together to form the new people of God. So as the Gentiles prepare to experience the Spirit of God, it begins at Samaria. So the Samaritans received the Spirit. Let me read to you from Acts chapter 8. When the apostles in Jerusalem, so Peter, James, John, and company are in Jerusalem, Mother Church, Christianity hasn't spread. It's only Acts 8. When the people at the mother church in Jerusalem heard that Samaria, Samaria is just some miles north. It's middle Israel as you go north. The Samaritans are not full-blood Jews. They are, and I don't mean this in a racist way, but they're half Jew, Gentile, half-breed, mixed culture. 
the Jews considered them unclean as if they were full Gentile. That's what's important, okay? So the gospel goes to a group of people that the Jews see as unclean, not, not fit to be the people of God. So let me read again. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had accepted the word of the Lord, they sent Peter and John from Jerusalem to Samaria. And when they arrived in Samaria, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on these believers and they received the Holy Spirit. Now that's clearly a two-stage process. And there's no arguing against it. Here are believers in Samaria who are saved, but they have not received the Holy Spirit. Listen, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit's a brand new thing. It just happened a few pages earlier. And here believers are who have not yet experienced that. So why didn't they experience the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation? And why did the Jerusalem brothers go to Samaria to validate their salvation? Why did the Jewish brothers go to the unclean brothers and put their hands on them and touch them, which was forbidden? Why did they touch unclean people? And why did the Holy Spirit come in this moment and this way? And is this normative for all of us? Now, the Pentecostals are still saying today, this is normative for you. You get saved, get back, and then later we're going to lay hands on you and you're going to get the Spirit. But this is a very unique situation. When Peter and John arrived here and find these people, these people have heard about Jesus. They have believed on the name of Jesus. They have been baptized in the name of Jesus. They just didn't have the Holy Spirit, and they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John show up and say, let us tell you what Jesus taught us. Why? Because we are the people he taught. We are the apostles. We are his disciples. We sat at his feet every day. He taught us about the things. And now we're going to tell them to you. And now we're going to lay our hands on you. And you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the, where the Pentecostals get the idea of the laying on of hands to receive what they call the baptism of the Spirit. Now notice in the text that the baptism of the Spirit language, that phrase is not used in the text. The baptism, the only baptism that shows up in the text is the baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something completely different, but the Pentecostals have conflated the word baptism in this passage to also be the baptism of the Spirit, and you can see clearly that, that it's not. But what it is, and you need to wrestle with it, is a two-stage process where people got saved and then later they received the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the incident of the Ephesian 12. This is the fourth passage that anchors the Pentecostal view. It's found in Acts 19. Let me read it. When Apollos was at Corinth, then Paul left and he took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. He travels over to, to Turkey, to Asia Minor. And there he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Tell us more about that. We don't even know what you're talking about. And, and, and so Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? They said, we received John's baptism. 
Paul said, you need to fire your teacher. You've only got part of the information. Okay? Now watch what Paul says. Then Paul said, verse 4, John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance. He told the people to believe on the one coming after him. Who was the person coming after John? No, that's Jesus. So Paul's explaining. John said, believe on the one that follows me. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So now you have the incident of the Ephesian 12. Pentecostalism would put forward again. Here is the two-step process. These people believe. Paul shows up and lays hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. They got the baptism of the Spirit and spoke in tongues. The question you're going to have to wrestle with is, is Pentecostalism correct in how they're interpreting these three or four passage now I and I want to remind you of this because I don't want you to walk away with the wrong tone if you're listening remotely and you're not in the room sometimes all the emotions don't translate I want you to know that I'm not speaking against Pentecostalism I'm asking you to wrestle with what you believe about the teachings that they're putting forward because it is the most predominant teaching on the Holy Spirit if you're going to encounter any teaching on the Holy Spirit out here in Christianity, the Baptists aren't talking about it at all, and most of the evangelicals are not talking about the Holy Spirit at all. And if you're going to encounter any teaching about the Holy Spirit, it's probably going to be Pentecostal teaching about the Holy Spirit. So I want you to be ready to encounter that, and I want you to know what you believe about that. If we go to the mission field together, we're going to meet Christians that are Pentecostal, Assembly of God. And I want you to be versed enough that you can talk to them and engage with them and understand where you are and how to deal with these four passages. So I want to remind you that this is a family discussion. I think this is super important to say out loud as often as possible. You know I have Baptist roots that I'm slowly, well, quickly drifting away from. Uh, we're trying to find middle ground to where we, we all meet together and find accuracy in the scripture. But is Pentecostalism the answer? I, 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 I couldn't go all the way to Pentecostalism because I see some errors. I'll teach against it in a few weeks, okay? Just bear with me. But I'm making their case for now, and I want to say that whatever you come away with in these discussions, this is a Christian family discussion, this is not about dividing ourselves over the Holy Spirit, especially when the Spirit is the very one that God has sent to unify us. This is the whole point. And for us to be fighting across denominational lines about the Holy Spirit, it's the most ironic thing on planet Earth. We're fighting about the very person of God who unites us. And we're saying, well, I know him in this way, and I know him in this way. My question is, is can he be known in more than one way? I don't know. I want you to think about that. You know, we've talked about how we address him, the Holy Spirit. Some of you call me pastor, and sometimes you'll be hanging around me, and you'll, you'll, somebody will walk up who knew me when they didn't know I was a pastor. Maybe somebody I met at the gym, or maybe one of my physicians, or maybe somebody I met in town, and they'll walk up and say, hey, Bobby. And I've seen some of you just kind of bristle. 
because you're uncomfortable with that. But listen, I am Bobby. And that's how they know me on a personal level. And you may know me on a, hey, pastor, on that level, but I'm still the same guy, right? Okay, so I'm just saying, let's be a little, little open-minded here. Family discussions can be very robust. At least my family discussions can be very robust. Listen, I live in a house with opinionated people. And when the boys come home from college, they're very opinionated. And we got lots of strong opinions. And we can have very robust family discussions. But at the end of the discussion, we are all heralds. We're all family. And, and I want, I, this is one of the things I really want to be different about Cornerstone. I want us to be able to not see eye to eye on every splitting of the hair, but still have a deep love for each other. I long for that because I've never had it in my church life growing up my whole life. It was them and us and, and, and that group and this group, but it was never the family of God trying to put forth the gospel in a unified way and loving people who saw things slightly different than we see it. As I argued about John Wesley, he's a righteous guy. You would find very little to criticize him about his lifestyle. He's a holy man of God. I, I, have, I have no criticisms of Brother Seymour at the Azusa Street Mission. They had a moving of the Spirit of God that launched a worldwide missions-minded denomination that seen millions of people come to Christ. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I'm just saying we are not going to be divided over the Spirit of God who is the uniter. So let, let me make just a couple of arguments against, as I wrap this up, against what I see as the baptism of, of the Spirit. The people in Acts chapter number 19, I, I don't want to use them as a normative case because the people in Acts 19 didn't know Jesus. They only knew that a Messiah should come. They did not know Jesus. They had not heard about that. And Paul says, no, John said, believe in the one who comes after him. All they knew is they had the baptism of John. They were looking for the Messiah. It's almost as if they still didn't know who he was. And so Paul introduces them to Jesus. And then they receive the Holy Spirit, which is, I know, doesn't happen unless you're born again. And so it, you see what I'm saying. So I, I don't know that I would use that as a test case for a normative experience because when now the gospel is preached, we know who the Messiah is 2,000 years later. Nobody's preaching the gospel saying, believe on him who is to come. No, he already came 2,000 years ago. We know his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can tell you all about him. We have documented books in the Bible about him, four biographies about him, a whole New Testament written about him and what his followers did. So let me quickly move to this. The, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a recent teaching. I want you to think about this for a minute. The teaching of the baptism of the Spirit uh, is a new teaching. Uh, in, in the context, it's about 100 years old, but in the context of 2,000 years of church history, 100 years old is a, like a baby doctrine. That's like something that just happened yesterday. Now, I want to say this and be careful about it. When something's new, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. But red lights should be flashing to tell you proceed with caution. It's especially true about any new teaching that you cannot connect to the first few centuries of the early church. 
Now, we all know that, you know, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, the church went a little haywire in Europe, right? We'll talk about that later then because you don't know. But it did, trust me. It did. And uh, everything you know about the corrupt Catholicism, there it is. And it just went crazy for a while. What I'm saying, though, is if you can't connect the teaching back to the early church fathers, the disciples of the disciples, the disciples of the disciples' disciples, those early, early Christians, I mean, just a generation or two from Jesus Christ, if you don't see them talking about the baptism of the Spirit and practicing the baptism of the Spirit and the laying on of hands and the speaking of tongues as a regular practice, then red lights, you should have a caution flag, at least, as you approach this issue. Uh, uh, one, I give you, let me kick the Baptist for a minute, like the rapture. Josh, the rapture was born about 1850 or so out of some strange uh, charismatic prayer meeting in Scotland, okay? Well, that teaching of the rapture became a Baptist staple. I mean, ba Baptist uh, eschatology really is built all about the rapture, and that's a new teaching, just a baby teaching in Christianity. Now, again, new doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but if somebody shows up and says, hey, I found a new teaching, nobody of these great godly people knew anything about it for 2,000 years, but it's something I've just discovered, and I want to share it with you, you need to be really careful. Really careful. Because a lot of really smart, brilliant, godly people have spent their whole lives doing nothing but studying and, and perpetuating Christianity, and to show up and say, hey, I've just got some, listen, nobody ever saw this, that should be a red flag to you. So I just want to put that out there. The phrase, the baptism of the Spirit, is never used in the Bible. That always troubles me as well. When you're saying, do you believe in the baptism of the Spirit and the laying on of hands and the speaking in tongues? Well, I would come closer to believing it if I could find the phrase in the Bible, the baptism of the Spirit. It's nowhere in the Scripture. And that's a shock to most Pentecostals and Charismatic that that is not a Bible phrase. As a matter of fact, when I searched for the Greek noun baptisma, which is your English noun, baptism, there were no instances of the word baptism appearing in the same verse with the words Holy Spirit. Baptism as a noun and Holy Spirit, I couldn't find them together in any verse. There is no baptism of the Spirit. Instead, let me tell you what you do find in the Bible, and I'm going to read all seven, or seven of them to you in just a second. What you do see in the Bible is seven instances where there is a Greek verb, not noun, baptism, but a verb to baptize. I will baptize. You will be baptized. You will find the verb used seven times in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. But in all seven of those instances, Jesus is the one baptizing and the Spirit is the medium. Like if I said, I'm going to baptize you in the baptistry here, I mean, I'm going to baptize you and I'm going to put you into the water as the medium. Does that make sense? The seven times you do find Spirit and the verb baptize, because that's the only way you'll find it in the Bible, then you find it differently, where the Spirit is the medium and someone else is doing the baptism. I'll show you and we'll deal with all the variants of this in just a second. The first four instances, there's seven of them. The first four are almost all identical. And they're found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where they're all telling the exact same story. 
and they're quoting the words of John the Baptist. Now let me just read one of them, one of the four. They're all very similar. I'll read John in just a minute. Luke 3.16, John the Baptist answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And when he gets here, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now John's saying, I've just been baptizing with water, but the guy you're going to believe on, the guy who's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Spirit. Jesus is the one baptizing. The Spirit is what they're being baptized with or in. I'm not sure which word to use exactly, but we're going to drench you, saturate you, plunge you, just drench you in the Holy Spirit of Almighty God, okay? And Jesus will do it. Now, let me explain quickly. John's baptism was not the same as baptism is now for us believers. It's different than what baptism we do here at Cornerstone. John the Baptist started baptizing people before he knew who the Messiah was. I want you to think about this. John the Baptist is out there in the wilderness calling people to repent and be baptized. They don't even know who the Messiah is yet. John's baptism was a call to repentance to tell the people, I need to get you prepared. My mission is to call you to repentance and get you to prepare because the Messiah is here. He's going to make his appearance and you need to be ready. If you want to be called the people of God, you need to be a prepared people. And the preparation is you need to repent and be baptized. When John tells the Jews they need to repent and be baptized, that message was over the top offensive. Now I have no language to express this to you. But when John is preaching this to his brother and sister Jews, he is insulting them. It is in your face. He is saying to them, you need to repent and be baptized because you're not God's people. You think you're God's people because you guys have a circumcision. That doesn't make you God's people. No, I know what you're going to say. We are Abraham's children. You think you're God's people because of your DNA. You have Abraham's blood flowing through your veins. But I'm saying you're not God's people. You think you're God's people because you read the Torah on the Sabbath? You think you're God's people because you twice a year come to the temple and worship? Why, you're not the people of God. If you want to be the people of God, you need to repent of your sins and be baptized and get ready to meet your Messiah. Boy, that was a rough message to preach. Then the Pharisee showed up and he took it up three more notches. I don't even have time for that. I mean, he just ratcheted it up and just lit into them. So then John ended his message by telling the people that when the Messiah did arrive, he would be marked and recognizable because God had told John the Baptist, when you meet him, you'll know it's him because you'll see the Spirit of God descend upon him and remain. This would mark a change from the Old Testament where the Spirit came and went on a select few. Now something is beginning to change. Now watch what happened in John chapter 1. Mom, you've probably already taught this. Then John gave this testimony. 
I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on Jesus. And I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize in water, God who sent me to baptize, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, that is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. John the Baptist said, we've seen it and we know who it is now. It is Jesus Christ. So here's what we know from John's teaching. We know that Jesus is the one who will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will drench your life. He will immerse you. He will pour God's Spirit upon your life. He will do the baptizing. He will do the immersing. He will pour out his Spirit into your life. And God's Spirit in us is what makes us God's new people. Oh, now we're getting to it. So the Corinthians are like, well, we're God's people because we speak in tongues. Paul said, no, you're God's people because you have God's Spirit living in you. You say, well, how do I know I'm, uh, I guess I'm God's people because I'm Baptist. That'd be very dangerous. Listen, we're God's people because we have God's Spirit. And that is bigger than being a denominational anything label. You say, well, you know, a lot of people believe Christianity is a white American religion. No, God's people are all colors and all races and all poverty levels and all socioeconomic levels and all social standings. It's not about that. That's not what makes you or disqualifies you from being God's people. Do you have God's spirit living in your life? Let me be really quick now because my time's almost gone. The fifth instance where the word verb baptize and the spirit are used together from the lips of jesus himself and i've already read it to you it's acts chapter one where jesus gathers them said i'm about to send to heaven and here's what jesus says in a few days tarry in jerusalem because in a few days you will be baptized with the holy spirit now we already know jesus is the one who's going to do it i'm going to pour my spirit out upon you it's going to happen in a few days the sixth instance there's only seven the sixth instance is where Peter quotes Jesus saying that in Acts 1. So the sixth instance is just Peter referring back to Jesus' statement. But here's what's curious. When Peter quotes Jesus, Peter is in Jerusalem giving a report about his mission experience over in Joppa. And he's gone to, or Jaffa, he's gone to Jaffa. He's sitting on the roof. The sheets let down from heaven. Rise, Peter, kill him. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Don't you call unclean what I've blessed. And then three men knock at the door and say, hey, we're Gentiles and we want you to come lead us to Christ. We represent the centur- Roman centurion Cornelius and the, Intal- Italian, the entire Italian regiment of the Roman army garrisoned down the street want to know how to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want you to connect some dots. How does that work out? Do you think that Roman soldier might have stuck a spear in Jesus' side? Do you think any of those soldiers might have driven the nails through his hands? Do you think any of those Roman soldiers might have stood watch at a tomb for three days? I don't know what happened in the lives of these Roman soldiers, but there's an entire regiment called the Italian band stationed down the street 
and where they are garrisoned and their centurion named Cornelius is a, is a good guy. We always think of Roman soldiers as horrible people. He's a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing. He's seeking. And he sent runners down to find Simon Peter, who they hear is a follower of Christ, one of the original apostles, a disciple, student of Jesus. And they say, will you come down here and show us? Now, Peter's telling the story. Let me, let me just read to you, Acts 11. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, Acts 1, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit. So Peter says this, so if God gave these Roman soldiers the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in the way of God? Isn't that cool? If God wants to save Roman soldiers, that's God's business, right? And who am I to get in the way of God? And when they heard this, the council at Jerusalem, the Jews at Jerusalem, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying okay so here's our conclusion even the Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life so Peter has led these soldiers to Christ he's gone back to Jerusalem now and Peter says in his report let me quote Jesus will be baptized with the Holy Spirit after we believe these people clearly have the Holy Spirit and they're Gentile Roman soldiers that we hate with all do you understand what's happening the Jews are hardcore racists the Jews are hardcore racists the Jews hate these Roman soldiers the Jews hate the Samaritans the Jews hate the Gentiles the Jews hate the Greeks the Jews hate the Egyptians and I could just keep going because the Jews hate everybody who's not a Jew they are hardcore racists they see everybody we are God's people and all of you are just dogs you're trash that's kind of the way they saw the whole scheme it was just us and everybody else and what's happening is that Jesus is dealing with racism in the church immediately after the birth of the church I just think this is beautiful while the church is still in its infancy just learning to crawl Jesus says the first thing we need to do is we need to eradicate from the minds of my Jewish followers all traces of racism I want to crush racism in the church of Jesus Christ I just think that's super cool I may come back and talk about that some more let me give you the last instance where baptism, sorry, the verb to baptize and the Holy Spirit show up together. And it's a unique one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just as the body, though one has many parts, you'll remember this, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit. Look up the Greek word, it's E-N, it's the in, in preposition. We're all baptized in one spirit or by one spirit. It's not incorrect. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now I want to close with this. This is so beautiful. Paul clearly says to us, to the Corinthians, I'm just going to extrapolate it to us. The Corinthians are Gentiles like you and I. They're Europeans. Paul clearly says to the Corinthians, we've all been baptized into one body and we are all the new people of God.
Now, here's the food for thought I want you to wrestle with. In the seven passages I just gave you, you'll notice that there was nothing said about speaking in tongues in any of the seven. The only place where to baptize and the Spirit show up together, there is no mention of tongues in that verse. You'll notice that in that verse there was no laying on of hands. Not one passage used the language, quote, the baptism of the Spirit, because that phrase is not found in the Bible. These are transitional passages, and they are moving God's people from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. These are transitional passages where once God's Spirit only came upon a few select people now something completely new is happening and God's spirit is going to come live in every single believer of every age of every nationality of every sex of every race if you believe on Jesus Christ he's going to put the spirit of God in you and you are going to become a living temple of almighty God. Now I want to read that Corinthians verse again in closing but I want to read it from the New Living Translation it's a, what I recommend for Young believers, because it's super simple to understand. Watch how beautiful this is in the NLT. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Paul said, some of us are Jews. Some are Gentiles. Some of us here are slaves. Some here are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit you say well i'm trying to figure out what i believe about the holy spirit great do it in a community where the one thing we're going to say is we will not be divided because we are one body and the one thing we have in common is we all share the spirit think about this for just a moment god's people are not not united because we're all middle class because we're not all middle class god's people are not united by social status because some have no social standing some have big social standing. God's people are not united by sex because we are male and female. We are not united by race because we have many different races. We are not united by passport color or same story or same background. What unites the people of God to be the new Israel, the new people of God, is that all of us have the Holy Spirit. This is what we have in common I guess I should say he is what we have in common and it is the spirit of this world let me say it another way it's the spirit of Antichrist that turns us against each other it is the nature of sin to conquer your neighbor it is the nature of sin to dominate your spouse the world labels and divides us into groups and tells us to be suspicious of any group that is not our group. Distrust them, be suspicious of them, talk down about them, keep them out, uh, build walls around, and, and be very, just push everybody out but your group. Here's what I'm learning. The Spirit of Christ destroys the labels. The Spirit of Christ destroys the categories. And He puts His arms around all of the children of God and unites us as brothers and sisters in a family that he calls the body of Jesus Christ. Dear church, we are the body of Christ. And what holds us together 
is not that we all vote Republican or we all vote Democrat or we all agree on anything. What holds us together is we are all indwelt by the exact same Spirit of the living God. And shouldn't He in our lives be bigger than our political affiliation? Can you imagine churches getting divided over Trump and Biden? That's nonsense. We have the Spirit of God. Can you imagine us being divided over any other silly thing? We can't get divided. We are the people of God. Now, I want to close with this. We'll pick it up again in the coming weeks. What I want to keep challenging you is you need a personal relationship with Holy Spirit. Make it personal. Speak to Him. He will speak to you. When He speaks to you, speak back to Him. Turn it into a conversation until the conversation lags, then pick it up again later. Just like you would with your spouse, just like you would with your kids, just like you would with a friend. And learn to be familiar to his voice. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to just challenge you right now. Are you the people of God? Are you the people of God? How do you know you're the people of God? Because we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. That happened when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now the Pentecostals believe in a second work. Okay, fine. We'll talk more about that. First work, second work, third work, fourth work. My challenge to you is, whether it's once, twice, or five times, what is your relationship with God's Spirit like right now? This is a great health checkup for us spiritually. Are you speaking to Him daily? Can you discern that he's speaking back yet? Maybe some of you tried last week and you got a little frustrated. Don't stop. Don't don't quit. He will speak to you. We just have to train our ears to hear him. Why don't you pray right now? God, I want to hear from you. God, I believe you came to live inside of me at my salvation experience, but I really haven't developed a relationship with you, Holy Spirit, and I want to. I want to learn to hear your voice. I want to learn to listen and obey you. I want you to be my internal guide into holiness. Holy Spirit, I want you to transform me into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I certainly can't do any of this on my own. But I want to claim what the scripture said, that God would give me his spirit and you would help me obey God. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you for that help this morning. Help me be all that God wants me to be. I want, I am the people of God. I'm one of the people of God. I'm a little frustrated that I don't always live out that. But I want to. God, this week, help me to live as your people, as your person, holy people. Spirit of God, we call out for you this morning. 
And the problem with our prayers is our tradition has not taught us how to speak to you. So our language is clumsy. We don't have the right words. So we're going to have to appeal to your sovereignty and your wisdom. If we get our prayers muddled and mixed up and wrong, you know what's right and you intercede for us and make the prayer come out right even if we're struggling now. God, what we really want to say is we love you and we feel loved by you and we want to grow in our relationship with you. We feel inadequate to live out the holiness we know we should, so we need your Spirit's help. Holy Spirit, please empower us to be bold and to be witnesses. Empower us to live holy lives. Empower us to let our light shine. All that you want us to be, God, we need your help. Spirit, transform us into Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, we pray that you would bring to bear the personality of God on our own personality. And God, your sense of humor would become our sense of humor. God, I like to think you're a little sarcastic, and maybe your sarcasm would become our sarcasm. Your wit, our wit, your love, God, our love. God, would you just pour out your personality? into our lives and let it be manifest to our co-workers and our classmates and our neighbors and our spouse and our children this week God we lean on you for this in Jesus name we pray